Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. We're almost done with the regular season in the NBA, just down the stretch run. And since we're three quarters of the way through the year, I figured it would be time to do another awards podcast. So I'm here today with Kevin Nye and Tyler Metcalf. And Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Nick. It's 60 degrees and sunny in Cleveland on March 8th. So that's a happy day all around. That's absurd. I don't think it's 60 degrees right now, and I'm in California, so I kind of expect it to be warm during March. Well, tough break. California just can't quite match up to Ohio, can it? Obviously not. Also, on the other line, we have Tyler Metcalf. And Tyler, how's the weather in Minnesota? Uh, I think Minnesota's actually like 55 and sunny today, so Midwest is where it's at. Well, I guess I'm just missing out. (laughs) Tough break. Tough break. Well, certainly not a tough break for the Midwesterner that we all have at number one on our theoretical MVP ballot. Gotta love that transition, right? Sure. Midwestern what? uh, East African or Midwestern Southeast Europe? Clearly a lot of the Midwest in Nigeria and Greece. That's famous for their Midwestern culture. Yeah, of course. Some of you might have guessed who we're talking about. I would hope most of you have guessed. We are talking about Giannis Adetokounmpo, the superstar of the league-leading Milwaukee Bucks. They just chalked up their 10th loss, so clearly this season should be written off for them. They're not going to be able to do anything. But in all seriousness, it's kind of funny to see the recent conversation about how oh no, LeBron has a real shot at MVP. This is going to be a really tight race down the stretch, and It almost could not be more obvious that that's just sort of a narrative push, because even though we had a really interesting conversation during our first quarter awards podcast about the MVP and a slightly less involved but still interesting discussion the second time around, it's pretty much impossible to think of anyone else for the MVP award at this point. But Tyler, why did you have Giannis at the top of your ballot? Because he's the only obvious choice. I mean, you you mentioned it. It, This isn't even close, and it and I guess we can talk about LeBron being in the discussion, but for him to be considered a legit, you know, winner of this award is absurd. And Giannis has, is averaging over 29 points, over 13 rebounds, almost six assists, and he's playing in just 31 minutes a game. The only other players in league history to average those numbers per game were Wilt twice and Elgin Baylor. Both those guys had to play 42 minutes a game to average those types of numbers. His net rating is plus 16.1 when he's on the court, and it drops to plus 5.2 when he's off. He has one of the best PERs of all time. What he does on both ends of the floor is otherworldly and just beyond compare at this point. Kevin, you clearly strongly disagree having Giannis in the exact same place on your ballot. So what are your thoughts on your Cleveland Cavaliers' favorite central division rival? Oh boy, that's uh, rivalry implies that there's like some give and take. Uh, so I, there's a lot of take. That's true, a lot of take for the Bucks. Um, well, I mean, I guess if you want to make the argument against Giannis, you can say uh, his net rating is only fourteen point nine when they're on the road. So like, how's that going to work in the playoffs? You know, no, there's there's nothing that hasn't been said, and like that's why the LeBron narrative has come up is because it's it's kind of boring at this point to be like, well, Bucks are just destroying everyone and running away with it. I mean, he's so good. Everything Tyler said is right. And uh, the stats are insane. The productivity is insane. The minutes rationing is different kind of insane, but still insane. Um, He's amazing. And, uh, and, He's fun to watch. He's great. He's everything. He's everything you want from an MVP. He dominates. He's getting better. The three-point shot hasn't quite come around as much as it looked like it did at the beginning of the season. But, um, you know, he can have games where he'll hit three out of five, and it makes the defense just have to give him that tiniest bit of respect, even though he's only shooting, I think, 30% from deep. Um, The fact that he can get hot is enough for now. also, the Bucks are going to win 66 games or something. So best player on the best team and also just the best player. I mean, that's your MVP. So 
not only did we not disagree on our number one selection for MVP, but we all also agreed on our number two selection for way far down the ballot. LeBron is still LeBron, which on the one hand, it seems like, yes, wow, what an incredible insight that was. But he's played pretty much half of his life in the NBA at this point and is still unequivocally one of the best players in the league. And we're all arguing him as the second best player in the league. He's leading the league in assists for the first time in his career. He's at about 10 and a half assists, his first time above 10 in his career. And it's funny because before every season, we have the conversation of is father time ever going to come for LeBron James? And LeBron comes out with his hashtag washed king discussions on Instagram. And every year, it's still the same thing. We're still waiting for the day where LeBron stops being LeBron. And he just doesn't want to acquiesce to that yet. It's not this year. That's for sure. Um, Here's a quick rundown of LeBron's MVP Uh, vote ranking by year. This is since 2004. 9, 6, 2, 5, 4, 1, 1, 3, 1, 1, 2, 3, 3, 4, 2, and 11 last year. He's going to be 2 this year. I mean, there's nothing that hasn't been said about him. He's just, I don't know. I don't know why he's invincible, but I'm glad I get to see it. What this guy does, so the work he puts into maintaining his body and just continuing to improve his game every year, it's incredible. And just, I'm so glad that we get to see an engaged LeBron again than what we got last year because that was just a shadow of him. And I'm sure he was hurt, but he clearly checked out on that team. He didn't want anything to do with those young guys. Um, and now he's really, really invested in this Lakers team and we're seeing, you know, good old LeBron again. I and mean, when he's on the court, their net rating of 10.4 is one of the best in the league. And when he leaves the court, they turn into a losing team with a net rating of negative 0.9. Um, that's just absurd that a 35 year old who's played, you know, is top, I think, three in the league history for minutes played, um, that he still has that impact on on his team is just wild and just incredible and something that we may never get to see again. We finally have a disagreement on our ballot. At number three, two of us put the same player and one of us did not. So we're going to throw to that person first. Kevin, you had James Harden at number three on your ballot, which obviously is two spots too low. Can you tell us why you don't have any real skill and you're just a seven-foot-tall athlete who can do anything because they don't need any skill? That's a, that's a wonderful intro to this thought. Um, look, the thing about Harden is I, like many other people, don't much care for James Harden. Um I don't like the foul drawing. I don't like the flailing. I don't like the complaining. Uh, Right before we started recording, we talked about how he just doesn't seem like a very likable guy. Um, I'm sure some of that is media training on his part. But um, the reality is that he's been slumping a little bit lately. He's been kind of shaky for the last two weeks. Kind of wonder if maybe there's like a a hidden injury that we don't know about. Um, But... The dude is still averaging 34 and a half a game, seven and a half assists, six and a half rebounds, almost two steals. And the Rockets are better than we thought they would be. Uh, Well, better than I thought they would be anyway. They're 39 and 23, fifth in the West. They've been pretty good. Well, they've lost a couple in a row, but they won maybe seven straight before this this little stumble here. Um, they're They're just better than I thought. And they, for the majority of the season, can only go as far as Harden can go. Recently, Westbrook has been on an absolute tear, but the fact that Harden, you know, has sort of done the, the high road thing and let Westbrook do some of that um, is relevant because he couldn't really do that with Chris Paul. And when Chris Paul wanted to do that, they would butt heads. So um, it's, there's there's a little bit of that, the sort of psychological piece to it that I think he deserves a little bit of credit for. Um, but mostly, except for these last two or three games where they just got beat by uh, they just got beat by the Hornets yesterday, which was ugly. Um, 
aside from this little stumble, I feel like they're a very good team. And I mean, they got a 114 offensive rating and you can pretty much pin that all on Harden because he's what makes them go. Um, so that's my case. I, you know, once you get past, I mean, the gap between one and two is big and the gap between two and everybody else is maybe not as big, but, um, nobody is touching LeBron for second to me. Um, and I guess Harden is just sort of the closest, uh, among the rest of them. So I definitely agree that no one is touching LeBron at number two and, I had Harden fourth, so it's not exactly as if I thought your pick was out of left field by any means. You brought up the fact that Harden has been carrying them offensively, and I think that's an important point to raise, especially given how hot Russell Westbrook has been recently and how much attention the general media has given to how hot Russell Westbrook has been recently. During November and December, James Harden was averaging nearly 40 points a game and was keeping this team entirely afloat on the offensive end. And they wouldn't be in the position they're in now where they're sort of having this hot run and people are maybe thinking that they could be a dark horse contention candidate. They wouldn't be having this run at all if James Harden hadn't been keeping them alive basically by himself during the middle stretch of the season. Yeah, the dude can play. Um He can also complain a lot, but he can play. Tyler, you and I had the same player at number three on our list, so let's talk about him now. What have you seen from Nikola Jokic so far this year? One of the big things is that he's just kind of continued to get better as the year's gone on. Um, And, you know, a big part of that is that he's just slowly playing himself more into shape. Uh, Not that he is in shape, but he's getting closer. Um, He's just really the the linchpin for how their offense runs. Um, And when he's on the court or when he leaves the court, their offensive rating drops by seven points. Um, He leads the team in points, rebounds, assists. Um, He's just really impressive and, you know, slowly improving his game year after year and is just a major reason why they're battling for home court advantage in the West. Um, he's he, It's just rare that we get to see a center of his skill and ability um, play out there. And just because of how different they are without him, um, I just nudged him to third by just a little bit. Um, but, and like you guys said, the gap between two and three is massive and, you know, three through seven, you know, could really be interchangeable. The thing about Jokic is that he has done this for the last two years. So maybe this is just who he is as a player, but he had an awful October and November where he basically couldn't hit anything that he shot. He wasn't taking all that many shots. Maybe he had some sort of idea that he didn't quite have it, but his true shooting percentage in October, 54.8%, so below league average, pretty not great for a center. November, even worse, 51%. Since then, by month, so starting with December, 62.9%, 60.7%, 70.6% in February, and 56.4 through four games in March, one of them being a really tough outing, so obviously that skews the numbers, but thing with Jokic is that after the first month and a half or so of the year where I guess he sort of treats it like it's all preseason, you know, going even through beginning of December. But once that mark hits, he becomes one of the best players in the league. And he's done that again this year. What's really wild about that is that he did start so bad for a minute there, but they were 13 and three through their first 16 games. So it's, it's confusing. Um, well, that's mostly because Paul Millsap was playing ridiculous defense, and since then he's looked a little bit older, and by a little bit I mean a lot. A decade or two, yeah. Um, my one concern about Jokic, um, and I, I don't watch the Nuggets that often. I think maybe I caught two of their games in the last couple weeks. But when you look at box scores, you see things like against the Clippers, he goes 9 for 13, scores 21 points, 9 boards in 25 minutes, and they lost by 29. Um, so you think like, oh, he was playing pretty efficiently or something. And I know that it's a team game, but I wonder if it's easier to, to let him be a scorer. I feel like maybe you can eliminate him in a way by making him be a scorer, um, in a way that 
the other MVP candidates are harder to contain. That's just sort of a pet theory, but I don't know. Well, the person that you have at number four on your MVP list, really the only person who contains him on a regular basis is himself. And that is Kawhi Leonard of the Los Angeles Clippers. He's having yet another really good year. He's missed a number of games due to injury management. I'm not even sure it's right to call it load management, given that the nature of Kawhi's injury is basically just, it's a decaying tendon. So the more he plays, the more likely that he won't be able to play as much later in his career. But he, of course, is the face of load management now, whether or not his injury is of a nature that it makes sense to load manage. But when he does play, he continues to be one of the best players in basketball. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, the Clippers are 37-12 and 12 when he's starting, 6-7 and seven when he doesn't play. That sounds right. Um, so, you know, there's a marked drop-off there. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like the other guys that are in this race, um, uh, Jokic, like you guys just said, um, I know Tyler will touch on Jason Tatum because Tatum is a stud. Uh, Luca, like there's there's something for each of those guys. So I think it's kind of a toss up in here. And for me, it was Kawhi just because uh, I'm defaulting to overwhelming talent. Um, and even though he's missed time and Luca's missed time, and you know Tatum had a a slower stretch earlier in the season compared to what he's doing now, um, I figure if all of those handicaps are roughly equal, then I'm going to give it to the guy who I just think is the best basketball player, and that's Kawhi. So let's actually go right to Jason Tatum now. So Tyler, you had James Harden at number four. We've already discussed him, but you had the Celtics Jason Tatum at number five on your board, which part of the value, I think, of doing these podcasts at quarter intervals in the season is that we never would have seen Jason Tatum on this list for either of the first two quarters, but from what we've seen from him over the past 20 games or so, it seems entirely reasonable that he's on this list, even if I didn't have him. Yeah, so I mean, with the slash spot, you know, I, I kind of kept rotating between like three or four guys, you know, I can see the case for Kawhi, for Luka, Siakam. I thought about Westbrook because he's been on a tear, um, but just kind of settled on Tatum because um, after just kind of digging into his numbers a little more, especially since the All-Star break, he's been a legit superstar. I mean, he scored at least 28 points in seven of his last eight games, including, you know, a 39, a 41-pointer, and the majority of those are the rest of those are over 30 points as well. Um, When he's on the court, the Celtics have a plus 11 net rating. And when he leaves the court, that drops to um, a negative 1.6. He's averaging 23 and a half points over seven rebounds, three assists. Um, His three point percentage is up to 40% on the year. He's playing awesome defense. Um, So I just, you know, the, the Celtics are playing really good basketball, and he's a major reason why. And he's just re- ever since that All-Star break, he's taken that jump from being a, you know, legit promising young star on the rise to a legit superstar who is the number one option for um, a, an Eastern Conference contender. Speaking of someone on the rise from young star to superstar, the player that both Kevin and I had at number five on our ballots, Luka Doncic was sort of the hot name earlier on in the season where he had a legitimate argument for the top spot on this list. He's fallen off a little bit since then, almost exclusively due to missing time with injury because when he's been on the court, he's been the same spectacular player as he's been all year averaging 28 points a game, nine and a half rebounds, a little under nine assists per game, leading this Dallas offense that has been at the top of the historical offensive rating ranking the entire year. And I think they still actually have historically the highest offensive rating we've ever seen. And that wouldn't be possible without Luca as that team's engine. He is awesome. Uh, I had some like preconceived notions about him. Um, mostly, you know, when you hear like, ah, this kid's been playing professionally since he was 16. So he's going to show up like driving a Lambo to his games and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, I kind of felt like I didn't want to like him. Uh, but everything I, everything I see, everything I hear, he's just, he's great. And he's just a slippery wizard out there. Um, he's so not imposing when you, you know, you watch LeBron, you watch Giannis, you watch even like the littler, quicker guys, uh, your Westbrooks or your, I don't know, take your pick. Um, and there's something about them that you're like, geez, how do you, how do you compete with that kind of athleticism? And Luca has that, but it's not, it's, it seems like it's invisible. His step back doesn't seem that fast, but he creates so much separation. You know, he, he slams on the brakes better than anyone. Maybe, um, it doesn't seem like his first step is going to blow past people, but he gets past them enough to take nine free throws a game. Um, he's just, like you said, he's the engine to the best offense that maybe we've ever seen. Um, and he's fun to watch. Uh, he'd be higher if he were shooting better than 31% from deep, but you know, he just turned 21. So he's got some time to figure that out. Let's move on to defensive player of the year rankings. And at number one, I had the same person that I had at number one on my MVP ballot, Giannis Adenokupo. And he is securing the rim better than anyone in the league. At one point, he allowed something, I think it was in the low 40s, like 43% on shots within three feet of the basket, which would be... 15% lower than the league average. And that's just talking about Giannis at the rim. That's not talking about what Giannis's main job is in the Milwaukee Bucks defense, which is basically just to cover everybody. They have Brooke Lopez dropping back to sort of be the person hanging around the rim, deterring shots there. Giannis is around the basket a decent amount as well, but for the most part, he's playing a lot of the free safety role that LeBron sort of made super famous during his run in Miami. But the Bucks have one of the best defenses in the league, and that defense relies a lot on Brook Lopez, for sure, but they simply would not be who they are without Giannis on that end. And given that the usual standbys for this award, Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green, Kawhi Leonard, aren't having particularly spectacular seasons it seems clear to me that Giannis is the choice up top, but Kevin, you did not have Giannis as the choice up top. So who was your number one for defensive player of the year? So I had Anthony Davis. Um, it's a little bit of a cop-out, I think. Uh, I acknowledge that, but two and a half blocks, one and a half steals a game, great rebounder, um, or maybe not like number one rebounder, but a good rebounder. Um, and He's just so in the same way that Rudy Gobert, a lot of times the blocks don't show up because guys just don't try it. Um, I think Davis has the same thing, you know, like guys don't necessarily have the chance to get inside on him. Um, but he's got seven games with five plus blocks this season. He's got 10 games with three plus steals this season. Um, I mean, that's crazy. And he would probably have higher numbers if he were playing more at the five, but instead he's, you know, he's spacing out more. He's getting on the wing. Um, and while all that's going on, uh, the Lakers, I think, have the third best D rating in the league. Basketball reference has him at third. So, you know, he's he's one of the linchpins of their very good defense. And the fact that, you know, LeBron is trying, that helps. And they have a couple shot blockers in uh, McGee and Howard also helps. but that I mean he he's just like he's so athletic and he's so long that I mean just imagine trying to score against him um so you know I, I think there's a few guys who are in the running I think all the choices that showed up on our list are viable options um I just had Davis because um it has felt like it's his award to lose throughout the season Tyler, you agreed with me, so make me feel better about myself. Why did you have Giannis as the top <laughs> choice on your ballot? Yeah, so I've had AD all season at number one for this award. Uh, saying, like Kevin said, second in blocks, second in steals among big men. Uh, he runs guys off the three. He controls the paint. Um, but Giannis is just, a, I hate to use this word, but a freak. Um, I mean, he's an elite rim protector. 
Um, the Bucks have the league's best defensive rating by four points, and he's a major reason why. Um, he has the 13th best defensive box plus minus in NBA history. Uh, the Bucks' defensive rating with him on the floor is 96.5 compared to 103.1 when he leaves the court. He's just a major reason why they are as good as they are on the defensive end. I and mean, they have an elite defense and his, you know, freakish intuition and athleticism is a big reason why um, he can play center field. He can, you know, guard guys in the post. He can switch onto guards on the perimeter. Even when he gets beat, his freakish wingspan, you know, helps him recover. Um, just, there isn't a mismatch that is in favor for opponents when he's defending them. So Tyler and I both had Anthony Davis at number two on our list. So no real need to relitigate him, but Kevin, since you had Anthony Davis in the top spot, you had someone different at number two, someone who maybe hasn't had a particularly good run recently, but clearly is one of the best defenders in the NBA what are your thoughts on what we've seen from Rudy Gobert? My thing with Gobert is I think I have an admitted bias because I watch a lot of jazz games. And kind of what I touched on with Davis is that he there are so many shots that are not attempted because of him. Um, obviously, we know he's a great shot blocker. Um, he does have these games where he gets five and he had... I think he had a stretch where he went like five blocks, one block, five blocks, seven blocks in four straight games. And you think, how does anyone even attempt a shot against him? And that still kind of happens. Um, you really, when you watch a Jazz game, you know, they can be much more aggressive on the wing because Rudy Gobert's in the middle and that's all you need. Um, he's so long. He's getting, he's still, I think, improving athleticism wise. Um, maybe getting a little better on not biting on pump fakes as much. And, um, and he's just, you know, it, this is probably partly on reputation, um, but obviously a great rebounder, obviously a great shot blocker. And um, when he's locked in, which for whatever reason with the Jazz isn't all the time, um, their defense is just, it, it's just absurd. Um, I can see dropping him down for these other guys. Giannis is great. Don't get me wrong. Um, Anthony Davis, great defender. All these guys are great defenders. So this might be a cop-out answer to take Gobert, but he's just he affects the game so much by limiting shots at the rim instead of necessarily blocking all of them. I had Gobert third on my list, so I don't really disagree with any of that. The Jazz defense since All-Star has been real rough, and there have been quite a few moments of Rudy Gobert just sort of standing around with his hands on his hips, wondering why his teammates aren't playing better on defense. So that's concerning, but it wasn't concerning enough for me to drop him out of my top three. It was, however, concerning enough to Tyler that he dropped Rudy Gobert out of his top three. So, Tyler, who did you have at number three on your list behind Giannis and Anthony Davis? Yeah, so I wanted to show a little love to the, uh, the defensive guards and went with Marcus Smart um, instead of Gobert. Um, I just think Smart's versatility is just gives him the edge over Gobert for me. Um, this dude can guard any position on the floor at a high level, and he's like 6'4", 6'5". Uh, so I mean, he's not a big dude, but he will outwork anyone else on the floor. He's strong. Um, he positions himself incredibly well. He's their defensive floor general. Um, he's just really leads the way for the Celtics on the defensive end and is a major reason why they're so competitive on that end. Um, without him, I think their defensive identity completely changes and looks so much worse. And he picks up a lot of um, the errors that, you know, guys like Kemba or Brad Wanamaker or, you know, some of the younger guys make. And he's always there to clean up their mess and to switch on to anybody and shut down the opposing team's best player. Moving on to Rookie of the Year, it may surprise all of you to hear that the three of us have the same two players at number one and number two on our ballots. It may also shock all of you to hear that the number one choice on all three of our ballots is the same number one choice that we've had all season long, John ja Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies. Ja is wild. He is just wild. Um, 
I caught a little bit of the Grizzlies game last night and just started texting a friend, like, just just gushing over this guy. He's so athletic. He's so just, he's just so good already. Um, he seems to read the floor well. He's, he moves like nobody you've ever seen. He gets up. Oh man, does he get up? And, um, he knocked down a couple of threes. I mean, he might've been four for four from deep last night. Um, and while obviously that's not sustainable, um, the fact that he's a threat out there is just, it's great. And, Along the way, of course, the Grizzlies are actually good, um, which is pretty exciting. They're up to 500. Um, they, I mean, to me, they're going to be the eighth seed in the West, but we'll see how that shakes out. But yeah, it's for me, it's it's Jaw by a long shot. The thing for Jaw that I think I enjoy the most is that when I started watching him, I was sort of thinking, wow, he reminds me a lot of sort of a cross between John Wall and Russell Westbrook. And then I thought, well, actually, neither of those guys can really shoot. And Jai isn't a high volume shooter, but he at least makes them when he takes them. And so I was trying to sort of revise my player comparison to figure out, you know, who does he remind me of? And what I started to realize is that Jaw's actually good enough that 10 years from now, we're going to be doing the same thing with him. You know, there's going to be the next young point guard prospect. It's like, wow, you know what? This guy's nuclear athleticism and crazy handle and really good passing vision for his age. He reminds me of a young Ja Morant. And it's cool to think about that, that, you know, in 10 years, we're going to be using Jaw for these examples, just like I was using John Wall and Russell Westbrook to try and compare Jaw to. So I think the the most important thing that you said when you're teeing this all up was that he's been there for the full season and I I do think that games played really matters um you know Zion was hurt so you hate to knock a guy for that but when Jaws helped the or been a major reason why the Grizzlies have vastly outperformed expectations all season you, you can't you know punish a guy because someone else came back for the final 30 games and played awesome. I and mean, he's going to be playing at this level for 82 games. Um, and 17 and a half points, seven assists, three and a half rebounds. The only other rookies to ever do that in NBA history are Oscar Robertson, Magic, Damon Stoudemire, Allen Iverson, and Trey Young. I and mean, that's pretty incredible company. And to take what most people thought was going to be, you know, a, a dumpster fire of a Grizzlies team and potentially lead them to the playoffs in his first year. It's absolutely incredible. Well, the reason you had to bring up not punishing jaw for a ridiculous performance from someone else is because even though Zion Williamson has missed half the season, he's been absolutely electric when he has played. He's brought the Pelicans from a pretty far down out there Western conference basement team and brought them into at least the discussion for making a playoff run. If the Pelicans hadn't had that 13 game losing streak earlier in the season, they might already be in the eighth seed. But basically what we've seen from Zion is that anyone who thought, Oh, he's just dominating against inferior high school kids. He won't be able to do that at Duke. Oh, he's just dominating against inferior college competition. He won't be able to do that in the NBA guess what? We're here. We're in the NBA and Zion is shoving Steven Adams out of the basket area and dunking all over everybody. His his second jump is so quick that he's reaching the peak of it before the other guy has come down from their first jump. Um, and people his size should not be as quick and agile and explosive as he is. Um, if he would have been healthy and playing like this all year, he probably would have been number one for me. Um, he's proving to be the star that, you know, we all thought and hoped he was. And he's the first rookie since Shaq to average over 23 points and six and a half rebounds. Granted, it's only going to be about 30 games or so. Um, but that's just incredible company. And he's so much fun to watch just every second he's on the floor. And he just continues to do things that, just look like they shouldn't be possible for him to do. Yeah, I mean, he's great. Um, the only hesitance or the only weak, well, there's two weaknesses that I have seen in him so far. Obviously, shooting the three after that first game where he just <laughs> ripped a bunch. Um, he's taken 12 in 18 games. Uh, he's at five of them, but the fact that he's not even considering it uh, tells you where his confidence is and where his stroke probably really is. Um And the other thing is that for as crazy athletic as he is, and he just, you know, 
he just eats up offensive rebounds. Um, he gets blocked a lot underneath. Uh, I think he's second in the NBA right now in blocked attempts per game behind only Colin Sexton. Um, so, I mean, that's it's something that's going to come with time. I think he's a little bit of a bull in a china shop. Um, so getting used to what the defenders around him are doing will, will have an effect there. Um, but the fact that you watch a Pels game, and even if it's a game where he doesn't have highlight dunks, you kind of look up in the third quarter and you're like, he's got 18 points? When did that happen? You know, he's just he just is always around the hoop and he's getting three offensive rebounds a game and he's putting back probably two of them. And it just adds up quick. At number three, Kevin and I both had Eric Paschal of the Golden State Warriors. He had a really hot start to the season, then fell off a ton during the middle part of the year and has started to recover a little bit since then. Oddly enough, his game is a bit similar to Zion's at this point in the sort of bull in a china shop aspect. He's not as big and obviously not as ridiculously athletic, but he is one of the few rookies that can sort of push smaller players around on the block and take advantage in the mid post to low post area. Ultimately, though, I have him third on my ballot just because this is a pretty weak rookie class outside of the top two. And he has been a decently solid performer for a team. And that's kind of all it takes to be at the low end of the rookie balloting at this point. But Tyler, you had someone different in your third slot. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I went with Kendrick Nunn. Um, undrafted, picked out of the G League. Um, and now he's a major contributor on a playoff team uh, fighting for home court advantage in the East. And, and he just adds a creative scoring option for them. He's started every game that he's played in this year, which is, I think, 60. Um, it, it's just... A, a cool aspect that he adds to their offense that they wouldn't really have without him. And just uh, one of these guys that has completely over exceeded any expectations and that, you know, vast majority of people had no idea who he was coming into the season. Yeah. If there were an award for uh, most improved rookie uh, or like most overachieving rookie, I think it's him. Moving on to the sixth man award. And we all had the same person at the top of the list who was not someone who has been at the top of the list all season, but we all ended up going with Dennis Schroeder. If we were to pick overachieving team of the season, I think it's pretty clearly the Oklahoma City Thunder and Schroeder has been a big part of their success. He is one of the three figures in their three point guard lineup, Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis Alexander and Schroeder. That lineup has been absolutely destroying teams all season in the range of a plus 30 points per 100 possessions net rating. And it'll be weird to not see Lou Williams win this award. But I think at this point, it probably is Schroeder's to lose. Yeah, he, he's been a major reason why they've been one of the best teams in the league since Thanksgiving. Um, I mean, his pure you know net rating difference of 6.1 on court versus negative 3.8 when he's off the court is really impressive um but what really stands out to me is his clutch numbers uh the thunder are in a you know a lot of close games and they win the vast majority of them uh but in those clutch situations where it's you know within five points in the last five minutes of a game um, his raw plus minus is plus 113 and he has a net rating of plus 37 um just it's incredible numbers for a guy that's come off the bench a guy that's been doubted a lot over his career and someone that I haven't really enjoyed watching a whole lot um before this year so I just think what he adds to that team the defensive tenaciousness the improved shooting um I, I think it's been really impressive off the bench for them this year he's been really good um the Thunder have been really good. You know, I, I can't really add too much to what Tyler just said. Um, you pretty much nailed that. But Schroeder has been um, very impressive. And it's, he's another guy that, like, you, if you're just, like, a box score watcher, you take a look at Thunder games and you're like, man, Schroeder had 26 again? You know, he, he went 5 for 9 from deep again? It, you know, it's it feels like once a week that you check a Thunder game and think, man, Schroeder is killing it. So. Um, 
yeah, he, he, I, and, and truth be told, I forgot about him when I started making this list. So, uh, that tells you how clued in I am to Dennis Schroeder, I guess, but no, he has been very good. All three of us had the same two players in the same order, funnily enough, at number two and number three, Montrez Harrell at number two, and then Lou Williams at number three. I've been a big Montrez fan for a while, so I was kind of hoping that he would win this year's award, especially just because I didn't want Lou Williams to win every single one of these awards for the rest of my lifetime. But ultimately, I ended up putting him second behind Schroeder just because that Thunder team has been so surprisingly spectacular. And because Schroeder has played such a big role in them being what they've been, but the two Clippers super subs continue to play outstanding basketball and continue to be in contention for this award all you really need to know about them is that they're bench players who end up playing down the stretch of every important game right i it feels like lou williams is maybe a little bit down from last year um looking at his per 36 numbers the scoring is down maybe four points uh rebounds are about the same assists are about the same you know it could just be that he's 33 and Maybe we're starting to see the first sign of a teeny tiny decline in Lou. Um, not enough to keep him out of the top two or three in this category, but uh, I just think the difference—the difference with the Clippers—is not necessarily Lou Williams, and I think it's also not necessarily Montrez Harrell. I, there's a combination there that, and the fact that they are so good together also kind of bumps Schroeder above them, if that makes any sense in my book. We finally have some disagreement. All three of us voted for a different player for most improved player of the year. So Tyler, I'm going to let you start with your number one choice. Who do you think is the most improved player in the NBA this season? So I still have it as Devontae Graham. I believe I've had him the entire season, actually, um, every one of these pods we've done. Um, but I he, he went from looking like a complete bust line. Yeah. He is a second round pick. So I don't know if bust works, but I, mean, he looked like he didn't even belong in the G league. And now he's a legitimate starting point guard. Um, he's averaging 13 more points per game, five more assists per game, two more rebounds per game. And his three point percentage is up 8% from last year. Um, and he will be one of six players in NBA history who have ever shot over 30, 36% from three on at least nine three-point attempts per game. So he's had a kind of a rough stretch here these last, or he's picked it up a little these last couple of weeks, but there's a month or so uh, where he was kind of really struggling. But overall, just looking at where he was last year and what he turned into this year, um, it, it would be so difficult for me to give this award to anyone else because he has just completely changed um, what type of player he is. Kevin, what about your choice for number one for this award? So Devonte Graham is fair, and I have some, I do have some nits to pick with that. Uh, but I gave it to Duncan Robinson um, because he just was kind of nothing last year, and I mean he played in 15 games. He took 35 three-pointers, and he made 10 of them. Uh, That's good for 28.6%. This year, he has taken 519 and has made 233 of them. He's shooting 45% from deep for a surprise, I shouldn't say surprise playoff team, but like a definitely overachieving Miami Heat team. Um, He's just, I mean, they have the second best three-point percentage in the NBA, and you can pretty aggressively credit Duncan Robinson for that since he's taking eight plus per game and making almost four of them. Um, I know that's sort of a one-dimensional thing and I acknowledge that that means there are other guys who should be in the discussion here and I know we'll touch on a couple of them Um, but that jump from barely making any impact whatsoever to being one of the best shooters in the league on a team that is one of the best shooting teams in the league and a team that uh, is pretty, pretty powerfully overachieving um, was just enough for me to, to put him in there. So I went with Devonte Graham for both of the first two podcasts we did this season as well. And I strongly considered doing it again, but I ended up going with Brandon Ingram for my top choice for most improved 
And it's not just that he went from, you know, solid starter to all-star candidate and eventual actual all-star in New Orleans, but really the biggest change for me is that his shooting has gone from theoretical to a huge part of his game. So last year he shot 33% from deep on fewer than two three-pointers a game. This year he's up to 39% from deep, but on six and a half triples per game. So it's not just that he's taking wide open shots and knocking those down decently well. He's gotten himself to the point where he's a pretty high volume three-point shooter and a pretty excellent one at that. And I don't think it's just a sample size issue. I think that his shooting improvement is actually real. And the main reason for that is that in addition to his three-point shooting, his free throw numbers have gone up from 68% last year to 86% this year. And at this point in the season, that's clearly a real development. That's not just hot shooting for a few games. And so it's not just the fact that he's gone from solid player to all-star. It's that his improvement is in such a way that makes me think that it's going to be lasting and that it's going to continue to have this positive impact on his career. Ingram's a beast. The only concern about Ingram is whether or not Zion is stepping on his toes now that he's back. And I think there is a little bit of reason for concern. Uh, However, the fact that Ingram has vastly improved the outside shot does mean that there's going to be a little more space for the two of them to coexist. Um, To your point about him moving the right direction and taking the right shots, his field goal attempts by distance on uh, basketball reference, uh, percentage of field goal attempts by distance, uh, 35% of his shots are threes this year. And last season it was about 13%. So he has lowered his 10 to 16 footers, his 16 to 24 footers, uh, his three to 10 footers. Like he's, he's taking fewer twos and uh, shooting just as well as he was uh, in, well, I guess a percent lower in the paint. Um, but so much better from deep that it has really, uh, opened things up for him and for the Pelicans. So I, I like, I like, I like the Ingram pick. I had him at three. Um, just the, the big difference with him just looks like he's more comfortable out on the floor. He looks happy and more comfortable being that lead, that main option for the Pelicans. Um, and you know, we've touched on it. He's averaging more points, rebounds, assists than last year. Um, and I think a big part of that is because he was the clear number one option all year. Um, I think it will be interesting how that changes if Zion kind of takes over that role going forward. But so far this year, what we've seen, uh, I like Ingram um, a lot and think he definitely deserves to be in the conversation. Uh, real quick, I just want to touch on Duncan Robinson because I do love him. Um, I had him at number two, 99th percentile in scoring and points per possession. Um and he will join only Steph Curry, who's done it twice as players with at least eight three-point attempts per game while shooting at least 44% from three. So the, the change in this dude's game, uh, going from playing 15 games last season to starting 58 out of 63 games so far this season uh, is real, and he's an awesome player, and people should take more notice of him. The only player on our ballots that we haven't discussed yet Pascal Siakam, I had him at number two on my ballot. And really, that's just because he's making the leap from really solid second star last year when he won Most Improved to this year when he's the number one option for them. He's a borderline All-NBA player. He was an All-Star pick and a very deserving All-Star starter this past go-around. It's a bit weird putting him here, given that he won the award last year, but I think he's taken yet another leap, and it's worth recognizing that. My take, uh, my counter take here is um, I don't know that he's drastically, I mean, he has a, he is getting to the rim, or he's finishing at the rim a lot better, um, but I think of it as more maybe circumstantial. I don't know how much more talented he is than last year, but he's got the opportunity because he doesn't have Kawhi taking 17 shots a game, and and Kawhi deserved them, of course. Um, but I, I, my my pushback is just I don't know how much better he is, rather than he's got more opportunity. I mean, he's very very good. Don't get me wrong, um, 
but that's my the only reason I don't feel like he's a he's a clear top one or two in this category. Well, you know who's the person giving him those opportunities? Nick Nurse of the Toronto Raptors. So now let's transition into our coach of the year discussion. And Tyler and I both had Nick Nurse at number one. I think the argument here is relatively straightforward. The Raptors were supposed to fall off after last year and losing Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, and they have not fallen off at all. And their defensive alignments changed more than any other team in the league because Nurse, unlike a lot of coaches, actually adjusts to the regular season team that he's playing on any given night. And the Raptors have actually been effective, even though they're changing their defensive rotations on such a regular basis. And really, it's just that this team was supposed to be a lot worse, and they aren't. And a huge part of that is because of the person who's throwing out the lineups every night. I, I think this guy is one of the most creative coaches in the league. Um, I, I thought the Raptors were just going to be hot garbage this year after losing Kawhi. Um, well, maybe not hot garbage, but not definitely not home court advantage in the East. Uh, good. Um, the lineups that they use, the guys that they've turned into productive players like Terrence Davis, Fr- Fred Van Vliet, Chris Boucher, and these are guys that a lot of people never even heard of coming into the draft, and they're picking them, you know, out of free agency and late in the second round, and developing them into really good players. And Nurse is happy to throw different looks defensively um, and offensively. They'll go to zone for a little bit. They'll throw in a couple full court presses, which for some reason NBA players d- don't have any memory of how to handle it. Um, and he just really throws teams off with his continuously changing schemes. Um, he, he's just really been a big reason why I think that team is overachieved and why they're a legit contender in the East and looking to repeat as NBA champions. I have no arguments against Nick Nurse. He is fantastic. Uh, I had him number two. Um, I, I Check that. I had him number three behind John Beeline. How dare you? How dare you? The disrespect. What? What? First it was John Beeline, but then when the Cavs moved on, I bumped J.B. Bickerstaff into my number one spot. Um, But no, uh, I have Nurse at second, and I have Eric Spolstra as number one um, for a couple reasons. Um, Mainly, this guy is just... He's incredible. He's in 10 years with the Heat, or 11 years now. Uh, He has two losing seasons. The first one was the year after LeBron left, when uh, one player on their roster uh, started more than 60 games. Uh, I'm sorry, one player started more than... uh, Let me see here. So Luol Deng did play in 72. Chris Bosh missed half the season. Dwayne Wade missed 20 games. Um, Norris Cole was there, like... Everyone on that team was just battered. It was it was wild, and they did okay, um, thirty seven and forty five. They were a losing team last year at thirty nine and forty three. Um, another kind of difficult season when you had Dragic missed fifty games, Winslow missed fifteen, um, lots of guys injured, lots of guys in and out of the lineup. This season, their projected over under was forty three and a half. And right now, on March 8th, they're 40 and 23. So, I mean, they're just, every year it seems like they overachieve. You think, like, maybe this is the year they're not good. Um, And he has turned Duncan Robinson into a superstar shooter. He's turned Kendrick Nunn into a phenomenal rookie. Um, Bam Adebayo. Why didn't we mention Bam Adebayo in Most Improved Player? What are you thinking? (laughs) Bam's amazing. that was an oversight. Um, but anyway, so the um, the Heat have just continued to be very, very good, and it's hard to take anything away from Spolstra. Um, I feel like he's going to be the guy who every year, he's going to be like the new Popovich, where every year it's like, well, Spolstra should at least be in the top three, but maybe let's not give him the award every year. This is stepping on my Pascal Siakam argument a bit, but I feel like the reason that Bam doesn't really fit for most improved player is because he was exactly, well, not maybe exactly this good last year, but he was pretty close to this good last year and just didn't play because of Hassan Whiteside. Mm -hmm. 
I had Eric Spolstra third on my ballot behind Nick Nurse and Dave Yeager of the Sacramento. Oh, wait. <laughs> no, but I had Spolstra at number two on my ballot, so I don't have any problem with that pick at all. If the Oklahoma City Thunder are the most surprising team of this NBA season, I think the Heat are a close second, and I think Spolstra is a huge part of that. But we, Kevin and I, both had Mike Budenholzer at number three on our ballots. Tyler, you had him number two, so I'm going to let you talk about him first. But what have we seen from Bud this year in Milwaukee? I'm just more of the same great coaching. I mean, he gets the best out of his players. He puts them in the right situations to win. They have the best defense. Again, they have one of the best offenses. They have a bunch of guys who just know their roles, play it to perfection, and they're on pace for, you know, almost 70 wins again. So I I feel like having him not towards the top, um, you know, would be a disservice to him and what he continues to do. You know, it can get boring having the same coaches there every year or every time we do these, but there's a reason for that. It's because they get the best out of their players. They put their players in the best situations to win and play winning basketball. And Budenholzer just continues to do that season after season. Yeah. Not much to add to that. He's, we've seen it before. We're seeing it again. And, um, you know, the Bucks destroying everyone. And even with some guys who aren't playing as well as they played last year, um, and they're still getting it done, to me, it's, you know, you got to give a ton of credit to to the coach for, I don't know, spearheading this whole ridiculous 53-10 and 10 thing they got going on. And speaking of ridiculous records, I had Frank Vogel number four on my ballot. Tyler had him third. Kevin, you had him fifth. And honestly, everybody expected the Lakers to be good this year. I'm not sure everybody expected them to be the best team in basketball. I know that we, the three of us, as part of the hashtag basketball power rankings, had the Clippers ahead of the Lakers. And granted, that was a playoff thing more than a regular season thing, but Ultimately, the coach does have to get some credit when your team goes 48 and 13. And we, we were making jokes at the start of the year and in the offseason when Jason Kidd got hired that Vogel wouldn't make it to the All-Star break. Um, just the ego management he's done, the how he's helped, you know, bring these guys together, um, you know, helped install one of the best defenses in the league. It's been really impressive. And then also navigating the LA media and, you know, the horrible Kobe Bryant tragedy and just kind of keeping that whole team together and motivated and focused. It's been really impressive and it's nice to see. I mean, it obviously helps when you have guys like AD and LeBron, but it's nice to see that coach, the Frank Vogel from Indiana, instead of, you know, the horrible Orlando experiment that he had. I feel like that Orlando disaster was just above his pay grade. Um, Cause I thought he was a pretty darn good coach in Indiana and just the roster construction in Orlando has been so strange for so long that uh, I'm not sure there was a lot he could do about it. And, you know, he's in some ways he's a reverse victim of his roster here um, where he's got two of the, I don't know, six best players in the league, maybe, um, you know, that tends to make your job a little easier, but like Tyler said, managing these guys, when you have some pretty enormous personalities in the locker room, um, that is a serious part of being a head coach in the NBA. So, um, he's done a great job. I also did not expect them to be this good, but they are. So he definitely deserves credit. And, you know, he's gotten, he's gotten some pretty good stuff out of, their bench guys, you know, it's been, a. I, I feel like a few of them have dealt with a few injuries, but if you can get one useful minute out of Rajon Rondo any given night, I think uh, you deserve con- to be considered for coach of the year. Well, if we're talking about people who are getting something out of nothing, I think the current world champion of that is the man who's fifth on my ballot, fourth on both Kevin and Tyler's ballots. Taylor Jenkins of the Memphis Grizzlies, who coming into the year, I will fully admit that this was incredibly wrong, but coming into the year, I thought that the Grizzlies would be the 15th best team in the Western Conference. They are not that. And most of the credit for that goes to John Morant, goes to Brandon Clark, goes to some of the players actually on that team. But 
Taylor Jenkins has to get a ton of credit as well from taking this team that by all accounts should have been in the basement of the Western Conference. And even if they don't end up being the eighth seed, the fact that they're 500 right now, 64 games into their season is wildly impressive. They're so much fun. Um, they were 6-16 six and 16 on December 8th and are now 32-32. and 32. Um, So my thing with Taylor Jenkins is that I'm a pretty serious NBA fan, right? You know, we talk on our Slack channel semi-regularly, just, you know, like what's going on with this game or that game or whatever. And I would say it was, I don't know, mid-January before I could name the Grizzlies coach. Um, that's just kind of how Memphis was supposed to be. Like you just said, Nick, there was not much hope there. There was not much to look forward to. Um, and then you just had to start taking them seriously because suddenly the new year started and they won, I think, eight in a row, um, lost a couple, won four more in a row. You know, they were, um, they were 13 and 22 on January 2nd. So that's what, 19 and 10 since then. Um, they're a blast. And the fact that, um, the fact that Jenkins can get something out of so many of these guys that you weren't really sure what you were going to get. I mean, Kyle Anderson is playing, is starting for them right now. Um, Josh Jackson, who sort of famously a, what were the Suns thinking draft pick? Uh, he's turned in some good games here recently. You know, he's not going to be their savior or anything, um, but in the last, his last four games anyway, 17 points, two and a, uh, two and a half assists, uh, almost three steals plus blocks a game. He's, uh, made 35% of his threes over that stretch. And maybe that's just a flash in the pan. Um, but the fact that they've been getting solid contributions from guys that you would never have expected to give solid contributions, um, I think, uh, a big chunk of the the kudos for that does go to the coach. I completely agree. And he, he's completely changed their identity from, you know, the grit and grind Grizzlies from eras before to this fun free flowing offense with great spacing. Uh, he plays into their strengths. He's somehow turned Dylan Brooks, who's a player into a decent player. Um, sorry, that was probably more personal. Than it needed to be. <laughs> Um, but he, he's just been fun and to turn this Grizzlies team into a fun team that, you know, people doubted at the beginning of the year and now continue to doubt as we approach the end of the regular season. And they just keep staying in that eight, eighth seed. And, you know, I think bumping them out of that is going to be a lot harder for, you know, the Pelicans or the Trailblazers or anyone else than a lot of people really think. And a lot of that is because of the systems that he's put in place and how he's, you know, helped develop and coach these guys up. The Trailblazers, the Pelicans, and, quote, everyone else. <laughs> you, I don't have the standing in front of me. You got, you understood what I was saying. I understood that you didn't mention the hard-charging Sacramento Kings. Well, we all know how that's going to end. <laughs> And with that, <laughs> oh boy! Anything else before we wrap up here? No, I, I, the only thing I got is my is to plug my own greatest and dumbest idea, which is I started a blog called the Dion Drankings. Oh yes, definitely go visit the Dion Drankings, y'all. It is my weekly update ranking the four players in the NBA named DeAndre, all of whom are pronounced the same but spelled or punctuated differently. Um, it's very exciting. In honor of the Kenny Atkinson news from this past week, can DeAndre Jordan be fifth? <laughs> Ouch. DeAndre Jordan is starting today. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, man. What a what a year. What a year for the rankings. Yeah. Man, the real winner here is me. <laughs> yes, definitely. It's not the Brooklyn Nets, I can tell you that much. No, it is not. All right, well... He is Kevin Nye. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin P. Nye. You can find him on the Dion Drankings and also on the hashtag Basketball Power Rankings. You can find Tyler Metcalf there as well on Twitter at TMetcalf11. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N and on the hashtag Basketball Power Rankings. Unfortunately, I have not been asked to guest rank the Dion Drankings yet, but who knows? Maybe I'll be there at some point as well. 
Give it time. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, please reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.